Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Before we get started, I want to tell you about our very first All the Wiser giveaway. We will be announcing all of the details on Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast and on our mini episode, A Little Wiser, next week. The teaser is that it is fun, it is meaningful, and it will brighten the day, the week, or maybe even the month of someone you know. So stay tuned and tune in next week or check us out on Instagram for all the details. Now on to today's episode with Chris Norton. Do you ever grieve for the life you might have had or the person you might have been? I think it's something we have all thought about to some degree, but the idea is to not allow it to get in the way of the life we are living now. Today's guest had an obstacle so great between the life he had dreamed of and the realities he was given. Chris was just 18 years old and a freshman in college when an accident on a football field changed the course of the world as he knew it. He will tell you that the way of overcoming almost anything, including the life you thought you would have, is the ability to choose hope over fear. He is one of the most optimistic guests we have had on this show. And after you listen to the interview, you can Google the video of Chris and his wife that over 300 million people have watched. Today's podcast episode proudly supports the Chris Norton Foundation. Chris believes that anyone with a spinal cord or neuromuscular disability has the potential to live their very best life. His charity is founded on these principles and offers everything from therapies to a really cool camp for kids, which you'll hear about at the end of the interview. Here's today's interview with the unstoppable Chris Norton. Hello, Chris, and welcome to All the Wiser. Hey, thank you for having me on. I always like to have our guests give a quick introduction of themselves. I find they do a better job than I do. So Chris Norton, how would you introduce yourself? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, a lot of times that uh, people know me from suffering a spinal cord injury and given a 3% chance to ever move anything back below my neck. And now I am a motivational speaker, author, and uh, a dad of seven kids so far and uh, also a founder of the Chris Norton Foundation. Well, those are lots of teasers for the conversation we are about to have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Including the seven kids pause so far. We'll get into that. Well, thank you for that introduction, Chris. And tell me a little bit about the backdrop of your childhood and growing up. So growing up, I 
was a competitor. I mean, I still am today, but I just love competing in everything that I do. So I, that's how you could really describe me. Uh, just did a bunch of sports, grew up with an amazing family, uh, two sisters. I was a middle child, uh, loving parents in a small town in Iowa, just outside of Des Moines, Iowa. And uh, thankfully, at that young age, I was taught you know, faith. I was taught to take responsibility for your life. And uh, those are some of the, the key things to my upbringing that really make me who I am. And, you know, teenage years are such an interesting time for all of us. And I always like think about kind of who you are on the inside versus who you are on the outside. So what was the full breadth of you, if you will? So on the outside, you're a competitive athlete. Who were you kind of on, on the inside behind closed doors, if you will? Yeah, I would say I was a just a friendly, social kid. Like I did not like to be at my house by myself. Like I always had to be surrounded by friends. Like I'm a peacemaker and I'm not very confrontational and I just want to get along with everybody, be friendly to everybody. So uh, I feel like that's how I would describe myself at least, especially as a teenager, just a social butterfly. Did you have insecurities? I think we all have them as, as teenagers. What were the things you you were maybe insecure about or that were hard for you? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, you just want to make sure like you're good enough and that you are living up to your potential. And so I always kind of felt this way or this pressure to live up to these expectations of, you know, being a successful athlete, having a good reputation. You, you always feel like, you know, am I doing that? Am I good enough? And that was always something that, you know, I always wondered. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a universal question that people yeah. struggle with. So we're going to talk about the moment that changed your life and led us to this conversation today. You shared with us a bit about high school, but can you set the stage and explain where you were in your life the day of the accident on the football field, which we will then share with our listeners the details of that and how it transpired? I was an 18-year-old kid loving college. Like I was living the dream. I was playing more than any freshman on the team. Uh, I loved the weekend going out uh, with friends. Like, I was just on top of the world. I had these big plans and dreams for myself. You know, I was going to be this all-American football player, get a business degree, and then meet the girl of my dreams and make enough money to someday like own a lake house or a beach house. Uh, I had nothing but joy and contentment at this moment in my life. Like I was just on cloud nine. That's such a fun time in life, right? Being new in college and the, yeah. you know all that comes with that, the socializing, the independence. So you're you know clearly enjoying all of that and having a blast. Set the stage for the day your injuries are sustained in, in the game. Tell us what happens that day. Yeah, it just was a typical uh, Saturday morning. Uh, roll out of bed to get ready for uh, our football meeting that morning. So we had a game against Central College, and uh, just can remember, you know, listening to some pump up music, uh, just visualizing some of my responsibilities for the game that day, and just uh, kind of getting that mind space to, you know, play a really physical game of football. I mean, like I said, I was a friendly guy. And really like peaceful and easygoing, but 
as soon as I put on the pads and the helmet, you know, I turned into a different person. Like I was this fierce warrior competitor person that uh, I love contact. And so, yeah, I have to kind of mentally get into that space. And that was just, it was always kind of fun prepping and, and getting ready for that, getting taped up. Real quick, Chris, I'm just curious. I think people will be interested to know what does it mean? Like, what do you do to get in that space to transform from like warm, bubbly, social Chris to fierce warrior Chris? There was something, I don't know, to the effect of as soon as you, like there's a, it's a process to get on your, you know, your leg, your pads for your pants, your shoulder pads, your helmet, your cleats. Like it takes time. And in that time of just, kind of prepping and preparing for, it sounds cliche, but like a battle, you are just kind of mentally just going to that place of, I got to bring it. Like I have to, like, I'm just kind of mentally just pumping myself up. And then just the, the effect of having that gear on, you, you feel like you're ready for battle and it just changes your mindset from, you know, passive, peaceful to now this is the opportunity to bring it like to any sort of anger, any sort of physicality that you want to bring is now like you just open that door to it because you have to in the game of football. Like if you want to play at the highest level and if you want to play on the field right away, you have to be a physical player. You cannot be afraid of contact. And that's where... um I got to play right away uh, more so than anybody else in my freshman class because I was very physical and was not afraid of contact. I wasn't a dirty player, don't get me wrong. I played clean, but I just played hard. Thank you for that. I mean, the transformation into Warrior Chris is helpful. So you are playing a lot and you're out there hitting hard and, and getting hit hard. Walk me through what happens on the field that day and then your first memories after? So we're playing Central College. They're a really um, good team and they take the lead pretty early on. And we went into halftime down a couple scores and, you know, the coach is just laying into us and firing us up. And and we come out in the second half uh, with more energy, more fire. And uh, we scored a touchdown right away bringing the momentum back on our side. So after we score a touchdown, it's our turn to kick the ball off to the other team. And so this is where I get to play is on the different special team units. And so we go out there and the kicker huddles us up and he calls the play, mortar kick right. You know, I'm pumped because I play on the right side of the field. So this is my opportunity to get in on the action, to, to hit somebody. And so I line up on that right side of the field and, uh, you know, the adrenaline's pumping. I can just, I can just feel that the play is going to happen on my side with me and I'm going to be right in on it. And so the ball's kicked. I'm sprinting downfield as hard as I possibly can go. And I see this opening forming and my instincts tell me that the ball carries and try running right through that gap, but I'm going to meet him right there. I'm going to stop him. And I'm going to drive my shoulder so hard through his legs that hopefully he'll drop the ball. And so I hit him with full force, full speed, but I mistimed my tackle 
just by a split second. Instead of getting my head in front of the ball carrier, which are what I was trying to do, my head collided right with his legs. And in an instant, I just lose all feeling and movement from my neck down. So I hear the collision of players, the whistle blows, the pile clears off, but I can't move. Like I'm trying so hard to push off the ground, but nothing in my body is working. It, it feels like someone just turned the power off to my body. And it was confusing. I'm, I have no idea why I'm unable to move. It didn't feel like a like a bad hit or a nasty or like a... It wasn't like a ooh or ah hit from the crowd or one that makes you cringe. It was just... It felt like a hit. It just felt like a routine play. And I just couldn't move. I couldn't get up. And uh, out of the corner of my eye, you know, I can see the defense huddled up. They're ready to take the field. They're all waiting on me to, to get off the field. Uh, the athletic trainers run out. They're checking on me. And uh, little did I know at the time that I just suffered a severe spinal cord injury and my life would never look the same after that. So you're not in physical pain. Is that right? Yeah, it completely cut off all feeling uh, and movement, which is also my pain. So I felt absolutely no pain and I was completely conscious the entire time. Like I didn't even have a concussion. My head wasn't rattled at all. What are you thinking in your head is the case? I mean, how are you emotionally experiencing and processing everything that's happening to you at this time? Yeah, so there was a time in high school football game where I tackled a player and it I got a stinger, which basically I, it's like a pinched nerve where your body goes numb temporarily. And so I'm just thinking, wow, this is a really bad stinger. I just got to have to wait it out and eventually I'll get my movement and feeling back and I'll walk off the field. And so I'm just kind of waiting for that moment to come. And unfortunately, that moment would never come. Uh, the athletic trainers, they, they roll me onto my back. And I can remember when I look up, one of the first people I see was a student athletic trainer who was helping the head athletic trainer uh, roll me over. And I lock eyes with her. And I could just see this fear in her eyes. Just That was like the first moment where I saw that, okay, well, maybe this, this isn't good. She knew something, yeah. Yeah, she like knew something that I didn't. I was just telling myself, like, I live in a bubble. Like, nothing bad, like, really ever happened to me. Um, I just thought bad things happen to other people that you read about in the newspaper, you watch on television. Well, they're asking me questions like, Chris, can you make a fist with your hand? You know, I'm trying to squeeze my hand and absolutely nothing is happening. And they asked me, Chris, can you feel us touching your legs? And I couldn't feel a thing. And they keep asking these like questions similar to those. And the answer was just no. And it just slowly was reinforcing that this is bad. And I, I kept trying to be strong, be positive, optimistic. But uh, eventually, the writing was on the wall. And then to really top things off, it was um, one of the EMTs called in for a helicopter. And that's when I knew, wow, this is bad. And so at that point, I just closed my eyes and began to pray. I just prayed to God to just let this to be some scare or maybe just some 
message that I'm supposed to receive about maybe I don't need to play football anymore. And I just started bargaining of, you know, just, I, don't, I won't play another sport again. Just uh, let me be able to walk. I just want to walk. Um, please, like whatever you do, just don't change my life. Like I love my life. Um, don't, don't ruin this. Uh, don't change my plans. And um, I'm also just trying to escape reality. Like I don't want to see or witness what's happening around me and watching my life it felt the time be destroyed. So you're you're medevaced to the hospital, and obviously this is all sinking in. What do you remember about the first conversation you had with doctors after they had, you know, the, the time to spend testing you, evaluating you, and treating you? Right before I'm about to go under for surgery, the surgeon asked me, Chris, do you have any questions? And that's when I asked, you know, will I ever walk again? And I could just see the look on his face of just defeat. And he just looks down on the ground and says, I don't know. And I, that was the moment where I, I just broke down crying. I was trying to like hold it in and, and be strong. And that was definitely one of the hardest moments. And and then also seeing like the nurses that were there to help out, um, they were all crying as well. It just felt like my worst nightmare. Were your parents with you at this time? Yeah. So my parents were actually at the game. Also, my older sister was there. My grandma was there. So your your family is with you. And, and what is the surgery? So they're going to fuse um, my C3, C4, and C5, which are three of my vertebrae that are really up high towards my head uh, in my in my neck. Um, so they're going to fuse those together and put in some screws because I fractured my C3, C4. And so to stabilize it, they're going to fuse it back together. And um, before that, one of the more difficult things I had to go through was traction where they actually had to essentially re-break my neck back together before surgery, which was, I had to be awake for that whole process, which was really painful, but that's what they had to do. And um, after surgery, you know, I was told I had a 3% chance of ever regaining any feeling or movement back below the neck. And how do you take that? I mean, how do you experience that information about you and your life? Yeah, I kind of, I felt like I went into this like twilight zone of processing and, and trying to figure out like, is this real? Like, again, I was still in this mode of just how can this be? Like, is this really happening? Like, is this just like a bad dream that I'm eventually going to wake up from? And, you know, after he said that, everything else he said after that, I, I couldn't tell you what he said. Like, it, it just was a blur because I was just processing that 3%. And it wasn't a 3% to walk. It was a 3% chance to move or feel. And so it was, as I'm processing this and trying to understand it, I, I felt this fear of no way. Like, this can't be my life. I have to get back to college. I have to get back to who I was. And I can't let this ruin my life. I have to beat this. Like, I'm going to beat this. And it was just like a moment where you know, I'm not going to be part of that 97%. I'm going to be part of 
that 3% and they could have given me 1%. I would have felt the same way. It's just, I felt like this sense of desperation of, of no way I can't let this happen. And um, I just felt this burning desire to overcome it, really. Uh, I was scared, don't get me wrong. I was terrified, but it was that fear of the alternative that made me be like, I have to, I have to step up. I have to do whatever, everything in my power to get better. Yeah, you say it really beautifully. You talk about you know hope versus fear, and that you really made a conscious choice to lean into the hope. But I, I am curious of that very question. What was your greatest fear, and what was your greatest hope? So my biggest fear was to never move again from my neck down, to not to be able to experience the joys of life, to be an athlete again, to get married, have a family, adventure out in the world. And I was an adventurous person. I was not someone who just to sit idle or be on the sidelines. Like I was a a go-getter. I was a doer. And to think that I might have to sit on the sidelines the rest of my life, maybe live with my family the rest of my life, have caregivers and nurses around the clock and um, assistants and and never, like I said, have a relationship, maybe even not have any friends because of the burdens was terrifying. You know, will I ever have fun and enjoy life? It was terrifying. I was so hopeless at so many different moments. And then my biggest hope was to to walk again, to get some, you know, semblance of life before I was injured. Because like I said, I, I felt like I was living on the top of life and I just wanted to get back to that that feeling again. Did you have the why me? Why did this happen to me? Yeah, I was trying to figure that out. I was I had a faith in God. Like God was always kind of a there if I needed it. I always tended to lean on myself versus him. And it was just, yeah, I just never had to depend on my faith ever. And it was a moment where I really had to depend on my faith and to choose that hope that, you know, God can take this mess and make it his message and and turn, you know, this pain into his, to a purpose and make some good out of it. But I didn't know how he's going to do that. I was wondering like, yeah, why is this happening to me? Like what good could possibly come from something so disastrous and awful. Like this is ruining my life. Like I just was so confused and and lost. And uh, I had these moments where I'm just wrestling with these questions. But at the end of the day, it was, I had to at least try and find out. And so that's why I kept choosing that hope and that faith over the fear. That's really what it kind of boiled down to was, well, the alternative of giving up is way worse than trying to figure out what good could come from it. Yeah. And you know, there was only one answer to giving up. You knew how that would. Exactly. Yeah. So there was that faith, that curiosity, that tenacity, all of these things that that clearly are within you. You know, I get the sense that you were a very independent person. I mean, you become dependent on somebody to scratch your nose if your nose scratches. I mean, walk me through what that piece of it looks like, the dependence piece. Yeah, that was extremely hard. I I had to wake somebody up in the middle of the night because I had an itch 
on my nose. Like, like you mentioned, I couldn't wipe the tears away from my eyes. I couldn't adjust the blanket if I wanted the blanket pulled up or if I wanted you know, my arms straight and um, couldn't bathe myself. Uh, I can remember the first time uh, they gave me this washcloth rag bath where they literally are just wiping my legs and arms and body down and watching them move my arms and legs around and not feeling that it was mine. Like it just felt like it belonged to a stranger and the vulnerability and the uncomfortableness to just let some strangers come in and just bathe you and help you with the bathroom. Like it was all these things that you never wanted somebody to be a part of. Um, now all of a sudden it's just like a revolving door of all these people coming into your room and, and checking on you. And it was, you know, horrible. I just went from the most independent moment of my life in college to pendant as a as a baby, really. And so that was really hard to as a guy and just as a person that letting go of that and letting go of that control. Yeah. You're in the hospital for three months and then you're in rehab. What was your experience like coming home? Did you go back to live with your parents at first? Yeah, I did. And we started to go home on the weekends. And I can remember we came home. It was probably the second weekend of visiting home. And we're just trying to get familiarized with the home and like trying to make it accessible and usable. And, you know, I'm trying to have some, you know, get back to my old life and social life and meeting with friends. And uh, it was my birthday weekend. And so a bunch of my friends, uh, we met at a a friend's house and we had these big plans that we're going to go watch, you know, March Madness basketball and uh, eat wings and uh, we're pretty excited. And so we're running late for our reservation. And so we we go outside and uh, a friend is quickly loading me into the vehicle. So he has to like transfer me out of my wheelchair into the front seat. And, and as he's doing this, his butt hit the lock button and um, we didn't register it at first. And so he he gets me in and as I'm like processing, like, did I just hear the lock sound? He slams the door shut. And I, I look at the lock button and it's pressed all the way down. I turn and look into the ignition and the keys are in the ignition. And my heart just dropped. Like, oh my gosh, like I'm locked in the car. And quickly, like my friends realize it too. And so they're like, Chris, just hit the unlock button, which sounds extremely simple and easy. Well, can't lift my arm far enough to hit the unlock button. And in that moment right there, I just thought, how pathetic. Like, I can't even unlock the car from inside. And I could just feel my eyes just begin to water. And then, so on top of that, not only, you know, can I not unlock the vehicle or late for this reservation, like I'm about to cry in front of like 10 of my, you know, best friends, uh, which is a really vulnerable thing to do. And but thankfully, you know, I had this one buddy, uh, Rich. He came up to my window. He started fogging it up with his breath, like he's breathing really heavily on it. And then he he rubs it off, and he says, "Chris, conserve your energy, conserve your breathing. You're running out of oxygen. I am going to save you." And like in this really goofy voice, and he starts doing these like really weird like 
breathing exercises as if I'm like running out of time for breathing, like oxygen. And I don't know what it was, but in that moment, I just bust out laughing. Like it was just a, a really random thing to start doing. And it really um, helped me to just kind of let go and to know that you know what, there's really nothing I can do about the situation. It's, it's out of my hands. You know, some other guys were on their way to go get the spare keys, but just to let go of that control and to make everything work out exactly as planned and nothing goes as planned. And, and so it's kind of a big turning point for me to just recognize that my life is not going to be easy. It's not going to go as planned and that's okay. So that was, that was a big moment for me as I was transitioning back home. It's also a wonderful example, which we've talked a lot about on this podcast of the power of humor and the role that it plays for so many people going through difficult things. Like what, a, and your friend was an example of that, right? Like he had that superpower in that moment to, to change everything for you. And I'm sure all of your friends who are watching you who are also in pain watching their friend be in pain. So mm -hmm. humor is powerful. It is. It's so powerful. I love that story. Thank you. I'm curious, and, and you kind of spoke to it now, but you're obviously, you know, as you shared, experiencing yourself very differently. As you go, you leave the walls of the hospital. They're used to working with patients, you know, whose bodies are changed or have lost abilities. But as you navigate out to your friends and now you show up physically a different Chris, how are they, your friends, but also how does the world experience you differently now that you are paralyzed and in a wheelchair? Yeah, it is different. I can actually remember the first time a group of my friends were coming to visit me in the hospital and their big group from back home. So like they just did not know how to talk to me or treat me or hang out with me. Like for me, like I was still Chris. I was still the same spirit as before. And they didn't know that. And they, you could just feel it was just a little uncomfortable, a little awkward when it never is that like that with my buddies. Like we're goofing around, we're teasing each other and just having fun. And it, it just wasn't like that. It was, it, you could tell they were just really nervous and wanted to make sure they said the right thing and weren't offensive. You know, they were really uncomfortable. But I do notice that, you know, I do have the privilege to see the best side of people. Um, people can see my challenges. They can see me, you know, in a wheelchair. And so they want to be kind and encouraging and helpful to me, which, you know, I really appreciate it. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not the only one with struggles and challenges. Uh, most of our challenges you can't see. And I know there's someone listening to this right now who's going through something just as bad as I've gone through, if not worse, but you just can't see it. And so we need to treat everybody with kindness and, and love and encouragement because we just really don't know what someone else is going through. It could be anxiety, depression, a divorce. They could have you know, lost a job from this pandemic and financially be struggling. Like, you know, there's a number of things that could be going on and uh, we just never really know. And so knowing that how people can treat me, I know they can do that with every single person. That's really beautiful. I, and thank you for saying that because um, that's that's a really powerful point that, that people are capable and that you get to experience that. 
So you talked about earlier these big questions, right, of what your life was going to look like and you wanting to be somebody who wanted to, you know, fall in love, get married, have a big life. And so I want to talk about your wife, Emily. And I know that initially you were dating online and, and set up a time for you and Emily to meet. And I was curious about, you know, people always say you kind of have to love yourself before you can fall in love. At the point that you met Emily, did you feel lovable or where were you in your head about what it meant to be Chris out dating and finding love in the world? Yeah, I felt like I was at a point where I did love myself and I I, I got to that place. It wasn't overnight, don't get me wrong, uh, because at first I was like, wow, I'm very unlovable. You know, after my injury, you know, how will a girl ever want to be with me and deal with who I am. And I even thought that with friends too, like, you know, who's going to be my friend? What value do I have to offer? Because what I really valued my, about myself was being an athlete with my physicality, my strength, my independence, and that was all gone. Well, I, I quickly found out just through being back out in the world and, you know, meeting friends, meeting, you know, new people and getting back to my old friends was that I didn't really care about that stuff. They cared about you know who I was as a person and how I made them feel and by the love and kindness that I gave. And so that's when I really started to realize that your character and just, yeah, who you are is what's most important. So I discovered that, you know, I was lovable and that gave me value. And I started to see my own value for my character. And so I began to just build that confidence up and understand that, you know, while I don't want to have these physical challenges and have help with, you know, so many different aspects of my daily life, um, I think there is a special enough person who could look past that. And so I um, began to kind of like meet girls and um, saw that I could still, you know, get a relationship. But then I, I met Emily online and right away I could just tell from, her heart, like she just asked the deep question. They weren't surface level stuff. And I just really got to know her really quickly. And I, I felt safe enough to to share, you know, some of the harder aspects of, of my life. And that was really comforting. And I felt really connected with her. And it just wanted to meet her very badly in person. We met at a public place. And you know, I was so nervous. I'm like, does she really understand the full, you know, gravity of the situation that I'm in? And my being in a wheelchair and being a quadriplegic, um, I've you know tried talking to her about it, but it's a whole other. It's a different when you're with me in person. But you know, she she came across that street. I remember watching her, and I think my jaw dropped. I picked it back up, and I'm trying to keep it together. Like Chris, act like you've been here before. She was way out of my league, but I was like, just keep it together. And uh, thankfully, she um, just talked to me like I was just another person and uh, wasn't focused on my you know, injury, my physical challenges, and just wanted to get to know me for who I was. And I just really appreciated that. Quickly fell in love with her. And where are you? What is your rehab and recovery? What what are you able to do with your body at this point, not able to do? And kind of what is your rehabilitation process look like? 
Yeah, at this point, I can stand with assistance. So if someone can help, you know, stand me up, I can get on my feet and I'll need someone to help balance. I can take a few steps with a couple people helping me out. I need a lot of help. Uh, I still can barely get around with a wheelchair. My arms are still pretty weak. Um, I can't, you know, get in and out of bed or put a shirt on, things like that. But I'm working on the steps. I'm working on standing better. And so when Emily comes in the picture, she actually really helps crank up my therapy. She kind of wasn't afraid to get right in there and to push me and to encourage me. And I told her about my goal to walk across stage of my college graduation. And it quickly became her goal and dream as well. So she really began to train and and go to my workouts with me, which was a lot of fun. And she even found the training spot that was really intensive and progressive to go to. And we uprooted to go live in Michigan to train at this facility called Barwis to get ready for the graduation walk. Yeah. So you literally move and she moves with you to find the gym that will hopefully help you reach your goal, which is to walk across the stage at your graduation. And when I saw the videos of you with your trainer and what it looks like with your body kind of spasming to do one lift, right? One leg press and hearing your trainer saying, this is a kid who would for four or five hours would just stay at it. I'll do it again. I'll do it again. I just can't imagine physically what it takes because it has to just be mental, right? I mean, it's it's unbelievable to watch. Yeah, it's not only physically exhausting, it's mentally exhausting uh, because you have to put so much mental concentration into every single movement that you do because it's not like, you know, you can pretty passively just kick your leg or you can pretty passively just as an able-bodied person, just walk. Like, you don't have to think about it. Well, for me, I had to be extremely conscious and tedious about every little movement that I do. So when I'm walking, taking steps with people that are helping me, you know, I have to think about, okay, I push down with my opposite leg. I lift up with my toes, with my knee, my, my hip flexor. Like, I'm thinking about all these little movements Every single time I had to do it. So it wasn't just physically, it was mentally just putting all that concentration into every single workout. Yeah, it was incredible to to watch some of the footage of that time. So you are dedicated beyond measure. You have moved, you have found the best place. Emily is by your side, literally at the training facility with you. And graduation day is upon us. Mm-hmm. And you decide the night before to ask Emily to marry you, and she wisely said yes. And then graduation day comes, which now is is this big moment, right? That you guys have worked for together for her to help you walk across the stage. What do you remember about that day and that ceremony? Yes, I'm extremely nervous uh, because you know I've been training really four and a half years for like a moment like this to really showcase all the time and effort and all the support people have given me. I wanted to feel like it wasn't wasted and it wasn't for for nothing, and uh, I just felt like this would be a great way to showcase it all. And, and so I put a lot of pressure on myself to 
really make sure it goes well. I also was thinking about, well, all these people are in this hot gym. Graduations are long. Like they're they're really long. And so I don't want to take up too much of people's time and uh, kind of take away from anybody else's experience. Uh, I just had all this pressure on myself. And so I was sickly nervous. But as soon as I, I get to the beginning of that stage, Emily stands me up. The whole gym just starts, like erupts in this roar of like cheers and clapping and support. And I was caught off guard by that. I was like shocked. They were all for it and so happy for me. And that really helped me just to relax myself and to just uh, do what I prepared to do. And now it's just to take those steps. And so I just focused on one step at a time and, and tried to enjoy the most of it. Although again, I was still nervous. Like Emily was in the video, you can see her like looking up at me, smiling, like she's just extremely proud of me. But I was an incredible feeling to finally get to that end of that stage and receive my diploma and to see all the tears in that room. I was so caught off guard when I, I looked up and looked at the crowd and everybody's crying. I'm like, what is happening? Like, what just happened? Did I miss something? I couldn't believe they were all crying over this, this moment. And so that was really... Um, Need to see just how encouraged people were in that gym, how moved they were by, you know, my determination. And it was, you know, from that graduation walk where, you know, people, it went viral. First off, it went all across the world. We were on all these national talk shows and, and media and received thousands of messages of, of just how inspirational this walk was for them and that it gave them the courage to overcome their own challenges in their personal life. And that was really fulfilling to see that. Well, yeah, you had this shared goal with Emily. I'm sure your families and your community and your classmates were were behind it, but 300 million people saw that video. What were the types of things? I mean, there's the obvious things that people would write, but was there, is there any standouts for when that moment was shared so widely of things that people said or wrote or shared with you? Yeah, there were a lot. But one that really stood out to me was from a mother who her daughter was kidnapped and was eventually found a couple of years later and had to go through you know a lot of intensive therapy and rehab and you know just dealing with trauma. But this walk, the graduation walk, really gave them courage and it gave her hope for the future of her daughter that you know, they can get through this and to just keep going and that's worth it because they, they struggle at times and they wonder, you know, what will will life ever get better for her daughter? And to read that message from them of how encouraging this graduation walk was for them was like, wow, that was a moment where I just felt this, it gave me goosebumps of the impact that this could have and it just really kind of gave me the fuel to to share my story, to make sure I can encourage every single person I could. And it really gave my pain a purpose. And that's kind of, you know, when I was first injured, I was wondering like, what good can this come from, God? Like, how can you make this, you know, part of my plan for the good of you? And, and for me, like, it just doesn't make sense. And it was just like, wow, this, I can see it all coming together. 
and started to make sense. How many hours do you think you put in to be able to walk those 10 steps? Oh, wow. Uh, thousands of hours. Um, you know, I was fortunate. Most people can't spend thousands of hours on therapy because they can't afford it. It's too expensive. Insurance won't cover that much training. But because I was injured in a NCAA sporting event and they have a uh, special at-risk insurance policy with Mutual of Omaha where, you know, if you're injured in, you know, a football game or any athletic event where, you know, you're paralyzed or uh, become a quadriplegic, that this policy will help cover your medical expenses. So it was under this policy that paid for my training, my rehab uh, equipment, um, caregiving, like things that are were instrumental for you know my recovery and where I was at. So I, I couldn't have done it without that kind of support. And so that was um, really crucial for me to to get to where I'm at. So when that video goes viral of this really heroic, big, triumphant moment that has thousands of hours behind it, you become a symbol, right? For people, this heroic symbol. Is it hard sometimes to have that, that, oh, I have to be optimistic. I have to be hopeful. I have to be like, can you give yourself room to also just be human, a hero and a human, a human with a cape on? (laughs) No, absolutely. I, I try to be very transparent about my struggles as much as I can. I, I feel like I'm open and honest that, you know, to this day, I, I still have struggles. There's there's times that I grieve and are harder than others. While I am very optimistic and positive, like that's just my nature, thankfully. And it's also something that I work really hard at too. Like every day, like I'm very conscious about how I'm feeling. Uh, I listen to my thoughts and I really process, you know, my body and, you know, I listen to what's off. Um, what do I need to do more of? What's, what can be better? And so I'm, I'm always making that choice to see the possibilities and not my disability to choose that faith and hope over fear and focus my blessings and not what I've lost. Uh, you know, it's you know, just like showering and brushing your teeth. It's something you got to do every day. Um, it's not just like every once in a while for good hygiene and same with your spirit. It, you got to do it every day. I am human. I, I have my off days and I, I try not to have off days. I try to just have maybe like off hours or off minutes. Those, those what I, I really try to narrow down my you know, my frustrations or my moments of not feeling my best. I really try to work through those as quickly as possible where it doesn't drag on for a whole day or the next day. All right. Well, thank you for that, Chris. And I do want to um, go back to Emily because that walk across the stage was, as we all know, a very public milestone. And there would be another goal that would be shared widely. And that was, you know, you, you have said widely that the reason you believe you were able to stand and walk across that stage was in large part because of Emily and who she is and your love for Emily and that you wanted to show up for her and be able to walk down the aisle. 
So that was a seven-yard walk down your wedding aisle, which was widely covered and absolutely beautiful and eventually turned into a film, which we will um, be letting people in the show notes click to see where they can watch it in its entirety. But that began your relationship. That day, obviously, was the day she became your wife. And as you said at the top of the interview, you now have seven kids And I know one of Emily's big things from day one was her desire, her calling to be a foster parent. And that is something that when you fell in love with Emily, you cautiously (laughs) joined her on that journey. And I read about you guys had already had, I think, a foster son who I believe was a toddler and going through some you know, behavioral issues, which, which as any parent knows, can be really stressful. And you and Emily are on a vacation and you get a phone call. Can you tell me about that phone call? Yeah, it was actually a text that we received. So we're out of the country. Um, we didn't, we weren't supposed to have any service. Somehow Emily gets service and it was a message from our foster care licensing um, agency. And she wrote a message that, hey, we have four girls that just came into care, ages one, four, six, and eight. Uh, Their mother passed away and their grandfather, who's their guardian, is in the hospital dying. Can you help out and take one of them or some of them? And I remember Emily reading this and looking up just with tears in her eyes. And she was just like, Chris, like, we've got to do something. Like, we got to take all of these kids. I'm just thinking, all of them, like that, we, let's, can we think about this? Like, let's just not jump right into it. Um, but like, this is kind of like how our all of our foster care conversations go. Like, Emily just is like, yes, like instantly. And I'm kind of a person where I'm like, let me process this. Let me like uh, work this out for myself. Um, but Emily's just like gun ho and you know, I'm trying to like talk her through like, okay, like if we do this, you know, we're gonna have five kids in our house. Uh, we're gonna need, you know, all these girl clothes, we're gonna need, you know, a bigger vehicle, we're gonna need bunk beds, you're gonna have to, you know, get all of us up in the morning and to bed to drive us around, cook meals and cleaning, like there's gonna be a lot of responsibility, like have you considered like all of this? Like th- there's a lot that's going to be going on. It's going to you know, take a toll probably on our relationship maybe um, with this adjustment. Like, are we ready for this? And she said she was. And so with her belief and confidence and knowing how much of the load like she'll have to carry, then I was like, okay, I'm, let's do it. Like, Let's make it happen. And so they came the day after Christmas and they had one backpack between the four of them, one backpack. Uh, so we had to go right out and get clothes. We Santa came, Santa was ready for them all. And so we gave them a special Christmas, but uh, it was, you know, a lot, it was a pretty big adjustment, but it was, it was incredible. The, the kids are incredible. And you adopted all four of the girls, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. All four. Just uh, almost two years later. How old are they? They are now ages 5, 7, 10, and 11. And how many foster kids have you had in total? 
18 kids in all. Uh, we have a two-year-old little boy right now, which is probably the little boy that if you can hear any screams in the background, that's going to be him. Um, and then we're also right now, we are co-parenting a seven-year-old boy. And then we've also adopted um, Whitley when she was 19 years old. She's 21 years old now. So uh, five adopted girls in all. And then that's how we have seven is through uh, fostering two-year-old boy and co-parenting a seven-year-old. And I mean, it's unbelievable, you know, what you guys do on a day-to-day basis for these kids who need parents and need love and need kindness, all those things that you just spoke to. And it's kind of perfect that this is the first time in the interview that I'm hearing them. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's as If it's meant to be, they are background music as they should be. Do you think that you can show up for them in like a more different or specific way because of what you've been through? Yeah, absolutely. I think I've gone through something that I didn't choose. It was unexpected. It's not what I wanted, but you know, I found to embrace it. I found to accept it and I found purpose and peace and contentment from it. And I want to show them that too, because they also have gone through things that they never chose for themselves. Like they didn't want to go to foster care. They didn't want to experience some of the traumas and the things that they've endured throughout their life. And um, I get that. I, I can relate to just going through things that you don't want to have happen. But you can also use that pain, that that mess for a greater cause and a greater purpose and find great fulfillment out of it if you choose to go that route. And so I, I'm trying to steer them to you know find peace and to use it for a greater good and it's going to equip them to handle more difficult things in the future. So I think that's where we can really relate is just those struggles and going through something really hard and um kind of makes me a, a kind of a unique dad in that sense because probably the most difficult thing I have found with my injury as of late is grieving the dad that I wanted to be. And I wanted to be the dad that was in the pool playing, that was throwing the football and playing catch and showing him how to swing a bat and teach him how to to go fishing and to just be a really hands-on, active dad. And I can't be that dad. And that's really hard. And it's so there's moments where it literally just takes me to tears when I can't do some of those things. But what I try to focus on is just to be the dad that I can be and I can be you know, a loving and present dad and a cheerleader for them. And I can vocalize and try to communicate the best I can to show them how to do things. But being a loving and present dad is, I think, the greatest dad that you can offer to your kids. And that's what I, I try to focus on. I love that. I was curious, You, we talked a little bit about the film, Seven Yards. And I know that in the process of the, making that film, you ended up having a conversation with the player who was involved in your accident, the player who you were faced up against on that day. Can you tell me about that conversation you had with him, your first conversation with him? That was a really a special moment 
before us because we we haven't met. And I never even cared to meet him or know his name, not because um, I was mad at him or had any resentment. It's just because it wasn't his fault. Like it really wasn't, didn't have anything to do with him. He just happened to be on the other end of a football play. But there was a bit of weight that he was carrying. So when we first met, you could see this, this weight that he was carrying and just releasing that way, you know, he, he was crying and um, to just be able to hug him and let him know that, hey, it's okay. Like, I don't have any hard feelings. It's not your fault. And for my parents to be there, to say the same thing that Preston, you know, it's okay. Um, it's, it has nothing to do with you. And, you know, my life is great. I love my life. I really do. It's, while I didn't choose it, I believe it was chosen for me. And um, I just try to comfort him and to know that. And I, I think that gave him great peace. So it had, yeah, as I imagine, you, you, he couldn't have not carried it with him, right? Yeah. And I never really considered that of how it might impact him and, and how he might feel about it. And if that was something that maybe he really needed. So it took over eight years for that moment to happen. I'm glad it did. Where are you in your life today? You know, your physical body, where are you in your physicality? And what are you doing with your professional life? Sort of paint a picture of where your life is today. We know you're a father of seven kids and counting, but where are you in your physical journey and what are you doing professionally? So with my physical training, I worked very diligently on it and did everything I could to gain back as much movement as possible. And I feel really good about that. Uh, like I said, spent thousands of hours trying to relearn to walk, but you know, I still couldn't walk on my own. While I could walk better with assistance, I still had a long ways to go to walk independently. Um, I was able to regain some movement with my arms, but still wasn't really seeing a lot of progress there as much as I wanted for as much time I was spending on it. And that's just kind of the reality with spinal cord injuries. Like you do eventually hit a plateau due to your injury. And I felt like I I was hitting my plateau and it just didn't make sense to spend so many hours in the gym away from my family and away from my work. And, you know, my work is to really to inspire and encourage someone else and to give them hope. And I do that through my motivational speaking, uh, my keynote, that The Power to Stand, uh, which is really not about the physical act of standing, but just finding that power within you to stand up to your challenges and to your fears, uh, to, to choose hope, even if you don't feel like it, even after uh, a devastating loss or being knocked down. And then also through my foundation, the Chris Norton Foundation, uh, we help you know, others with neurological disorders and provide resources to facilities to strengthen their rehabilitation options um, because not all facilities are created equal in what they can offer to the, the population there. And then we also started a wheelchair camp for kids, which is a really cool, fun experience. We bring in like 25 kids and their families completely for free through donations and these kids get to zip line, horseback ride, laser tag. Uh, we're going to go scuba diving this summer. We're going to do trap shooting. Just a bunch of fun camp activities that they can do with their whole family, with 
other friends that they'll meet at camp. And it's just a great way for the families to come together and these kids to come together and just have a really memorable experience. Well, you know, another theme I think that comes up on all the wiser is loss and gain. And clearly you've been incredibly, you know, honest and vulnerable about your loss, but I think your gains are just immeasurable when you think about these kids and what you've created for them and the work in your foundation and and your own kids. So the gains are real. <laughs> oh, definitely. I, I would never, uh, if I could go back to change that play, I wouldn't do it. Like I, I have too many blessings in my life to ever want to change my situation. Like it, there's just no way I could ever change that play. And you touched on it that your message when you speak is this notion of standing and not physically standing. And, you know, you said even, you know, with companies standing for an idea. So I thought it would be a fitting question to pose to you to end the interview, which is, what do you stand for? I mean, I stand for hope, love, and and kindness. I know those words get tossed around a lot, but they're important. They we're all human and we all need those things. And I hope that through my example and my stories, my my lessons that is passed on to somebody else, uh, stories are so memorable. And so I think through my storytelling and those messages attached to them, I, it really makes a difference that people remember them. And uh, to see you know that impact in my audience and uh, receiving those messages afterwards, and it's all worth it. And so I'm really privileged to have that that platform to to go and, and share that story. I love it all. And thank you for allowing me to play a small part in sharing your story with our listeners. I can't wait to share this episode with them. And I'm glad that um, your kids could join us yeah. at The Wiser as well. <laughs> yes, thank you for um, allowing them to be a part of it. <laughs> Okay, we're going to end with a little something called lightning round. It's it's very fun and light and easy. I'm just going to fire off a quick little question or statement and you take it from there. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. Favorite childhood cereal? Tricks. Best way to spend a Friday night? Campfire with s'mores. Favorite city? Oh, Nashville. Best piece of advice I've ever received? If you don't like where you're at, then do something about it. Favorite song? Your song by Elton John. Greatest hope for your children? That they make a, a positive dent in this world and that they feel loved and spread love. Awesome, Chris. You are a true gift in the world and I hope everybody will follow you and discover all of the great things that you and impactful things that you are up to in this world. So where can they learn more about you and your work? Go to chrisnorton.org. You can learn about my speaking, my foundation, the books, the film, uh, all from that website, chrisnorton.org. And then also social media. I'm active with Instagram and Facebook. And my handle is Chris. A Norton 16. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris, for your time and um, for being a part 
of all the wiser and enjoy the day with a very full house. Yeah, well, thank you. And I almost forgot to mention that the film Seven Yards is, uh, will be available on Netflix now at the release of this. So uh, that's really exciting to have it on Netflix, the, the largest streaming platform. But no, thank you, Kimmy, for uh, having me on. It's been a privilege. All right. Have a great day. Thank you, Chris. Yep. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And as a reminder, tune in next week to A Little Wiser, my mini episodes with my producer, Erica Gerard, to hear all the details about this very fun and meaningful giveaway. Thank you for listening. You can go to our show notes for links to everything that Chris and I discussed. And of course, go ahead and Google for the video of his tear-jerking and epic college graduation. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.